on today's episode of The Leadership Drives. Yeah, I remember uh, rocking him to sleep uh, the night after George Floyd was murdered and thinking, you know, this is not, you know, we moved back home to, you know, to be close to family, to raise our son here and, uh, and, you know, ensure that him and every other little kid that looks like him will have uh, an amazing um, life. And just that overwhelming feeling of like helplessness in that moment. Welcome to the Leadership Drives podcast. Now here's your host, Mylena Sutton. Hello, podcast family, and welcome to the Leadership Drives, the podcast where you are invited to travel with me as I endeavor to study leadership in its various forms. I want to know how and why people lead, whether on or off the clock, paid or unpaid, at home or beyond. As you probably know, so much is written about the universal aspects of leadership, but context is where the rubber meets the road. In turn, I look for leaders whose contexts are anything but textbook. My goal is to understand what leadership looks like in their unique corners of the world. Now, I know I just said that I believe that context matters greatly. This is true. What is also true is that I believe the ways in which a person's labor, whether paid or unpaid, on the clock or off the clock, at home or beyond, I believe the ways in which a person's labor supports their highest and best vision of themselves is equally, if not more so, important. The lengths to which leaders will go to connect their inner drive to what they do every single day is captivating. This nexus is so remarkable to me that I prefer to meet my podcast guests in person. Whether it means a trip across the country or a simple drive up the New Jersey Turnpike, my goal is to understand the trade-offs, the choices that people make to gain alignment between their personal and professional lives and how that impacts their ability to create visions that other people can embrace. Thank you first for making time. Of course. You flew in from Minneapolis for something completely unrelated to this, so thank you. (laughs) No, I'm happy to be here, happy to, and excited to talk to you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So, first of all, how long is the flight from Minneapolis? About just shy of three hours. Um, which was, I was surprised, it was a little longer than I thought. I'm used to like DC, Minneapolis to DC, okay. which is like two hours, you know, it feels pretty quick. And it's like, oh, this is an extra like 45 or 50 minutes that I'm in the air. But you may have been on a slow plane. <laughs> <laughs> do you travel often? I do. I feel like I uh, travel both for fun with my family. We like to travel and visit new places. And then work keep, keeps me sort of traveling. Really? Fairly uh, frequently. 
Okay. Yeah. I would have thought you wouldn't have done so much traveling. Um, for some reason, when I think of each of your respective cities, mm-hmm. I don't think of you all as traveling at all. I think yeah. of you being so immersed in your cities. Well, I mean, we always have, it's cool because we have the opportunities to like travel to like learn from each other. Okay. So, um, you know, for example, last, I can't remember, last fall, maybe, um, I got, I went to Newark to, uh, support Tish in the work that she was doing. She was holding an event for her, um, investors and uh, advisory council members. And so, you know, I had the opportunity to go support her and see what that was like. And then, you know, the reason I'm here this week in Philly is because we have um, our all staff or all team retreats. So we have like little pot and then we have leadership team retreats that we travel for and, okay. you know, so stuff here and there. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. So tell me what drew you to the Greenlight Fund? Sure. So Long story, but um, most of my career um, until Greenlight has been really focused on uh, the federal level, federal policy. Um, I was living and working in Washington, D.C. Um, I left uh, Minneapolis, um, went to college in D.C., went to grad school in D.C. as well, and really stayed and, and built, for the most part, built my career there. Um I uh, my last uh, role in D.C. was working in the Obama administration, and that came to an end. And I, my uh, my husband and I started thinking about, okay, what's next? What do we want to do? It also happened to coincide the end of the administration that has happened to coincide with us um, starting our family, okay. and uh, well, and for making the decision that. It would be nice to raise our son, you know, in close proximity with uh, two family, and so okay. we made the decision to leave DC and move to my hometown, Minneapolis. Um, my my husband, I, it took some convincing. Where is he from? <laughs> he grew up in Kingston, Jamaica. And you took that man to the coldest part of cold. I did. I did. I talked him into it. Um, you know, every winter now he looks at me and says, "Why are we here?" But it's okay. We're, we, I mean, I'm like, oh my gosh, why are we here? Because it's so cold. But my um, mother lives in North Dakota. Oof. Yeah. And you probably don't go visit for Christmas, do you? <laughs> I can't admit that on the record. So yeah, we made the transition home, uh, but, you know, home for me to, to Minneapolis. And, um, and at the time, during that transition, I was doing some work for a national education nonprofit but had really set my sights on wanting to uh, find an opportunity that would allow me to focus in my community locally. Um, after so many years of working at the national and federal level, I you know, wanted a change and I wanted to be able, and also feeling like I knew we're here, we're probably here for the long term, we're raising our son here, um, this is where my family is. Um, and then also, uh, feeling uh, and embracing sort of a sense of uh, duty to carry on the legacy of um, of a lot of my community and family members who've done a lot of work in the Twin Cities to uh, uplift and support, in particular, the Black community. You know, I, knew, I just knew I really wanted to find an opportunity that would allow me to focus locally. And uh, Greenlight came along and I started learning and reading a little more about it and, you know, trying to understand this, like, kind of unique uh, intersection of it being a nonprofit and philanthropic organization and what that really meant. And um, 
ultimately really felt, started feeling like, oh, this is a perfect match for me. I have this like national experience and, um, and then also you know, this community desire to have an impact in my community, particularly for the most marginalized and, um, and Greenlight sort of meshes those two things together, both with like the deep focus on community and community engagement, um, and, and, the community driving our work, but also on the other hand, the opportunity to look nationally and say what programs are working across the country that could be a good fit for what I'm seeing and hearing the needs are in my community. And so, um, yeah, pursued it. And here we are today. It was, it was a long process. You are listening to the fourth and final individual interview with executive directors of the Greenlight Fund, which is headquartered in Boston, Massachusetts. Simone Hardiman-Jones is the executive director of the Greenlight Project in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and has been part of the Greenlight team since 2020. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Simone. How is motherhood? Wow, that is a <laughs> big question. Motherhood is a mix of amazingness, if that's a word. It's amazing. It's exhausting. It's stressful. It gives me anxiety. Um, I have a Black son. I'm raising a Black son. He's five. Uh, his name is Leo. He is like the reason I get up every morning and do the work that I do. Um, you know, I remember... Uh, rocking him to sleep uh, the night after George Floyd was murdered and thinking, you know, this is not, you know, we moved back home to, you know, to be close to family, to raise our son here and, uh, and, you know, ensure that him and every other little kid that looks like him will have uh, an amazing um, life and just that overwhelming feeling of like helplessness in that moment uh, was really hard and you know it comes back and visits me every now and then um, but uh, but you know being a mother is you know why I, I so I will say I never had that overwhelming desire like yes growing up like I want to be a mom um, but now that I am, it truly is one of the best things I get to do. Wow. Is it hard to balance being the executive director of Greenlight and being a mom and being a wife and being a daughter and doing whatever things you do in the community other than work? So how, how do you balance all this? It is hard. Um, constantly busy. Um, I want to be present for my my son and, you know, show up at school and, you know, like you said, be a good partner, be a good sibling and daughter and support my family. Um, I, and then, and I also like to like make everyone happy. So I say yes when someone says, will you sit on this board or will you join me at this thing? You know, and so, um, my, uh, so recently I've been working on balance and being thoughtful about what I say yes to and what I'm committing myself to and what my priorities are. And then also telling myself, it's okay. It's okay to say no. It's okay to step back. It's okay to say, I actually need this time to do this or 
I've traveled for the last two weeks in a row and haven't been able to hang out with my kid. So I'm going to, you know, say no to this thing and, and just giving myself permission to uh, make those decisions because um, life is short and I don't want to look back and say, uh, you know, to be upset that I missed, you know, the band concert or the soccer game for that really important, you know, name it, you know, meeting or, you know, whatever it was, um, what's, what am I going to remember more, you know, and sort of po- you know, posing that question to myself. Amen on setting boundaries. It, it's a work, it's a work in progress. I will say it, you know, mm-hmm. and it's, it's not easy, but, um, but I'm trying. I tend to find that, and tell me if I'm way off base here, mm-hmm. I tend to find that people usually set boundaries um, because they feel like they're forced to, mm-hmm. because you start to see, I need boundaries to have whatever X, Y, Z is that matters to me. And if I want more time with my kid, I have to say no to this. If I want this, I have to say that. And I think most people start to insert boundaries when they realize without them, life will just life and take over. Yep. Yep. I I think that's exactly right. And I felt that. I have felt that uh, many times. And um, like I said, that's why I keep saying it's a work in progress because I think you can slip in and out of that, you know, and sort of have to do a reset and say, okay, I'm starting to feel this, you know, feel that anxiety or feel, you know, whatever it is you're feeling and need to sort of say, okay, like, what do I need to do to hit pause, step back and reprioritize, reset, um, reorganize and recommit to, you know, what, um, what my initial intentions are. When you need to escape just for a moment for yourself, what do you like to do? So I don't feel like I have a lot of time to escape, but I will say the times that I do, it's most often, I have a twin sister, we are best friends, um, and she also is in an incredibly demanding professional role. She has um, a daughter and a, a spouse and she's, you know, super busy as well. And, you know, there are moments where we'll text each other and say, hey, can you get away for a quick glass of wine or let's go have a quick dinner? Um, and, you know, the stars might align where she's dropping her daughter off at dance and my son is covered. My husband has my son. And we meet up and have a quick, you know, happy hour glass of wine and, you know, breathe a sigh of relief and then get back to it. Yeah. Indeed. So, Thank you for sharing. Yes. So now I want to come back to green light, but in a roundabout way. Okay. Tell me about Milwaukee, excuse me, Minneapolis first. I will say this. Um, I've never been there. And this is probably ignorant to some people, but I'm just going to say it. I always thought I have a girlfriend from grad school who was from that area. And the way I've always thought of Minneapolis, I think this is the land of whiteness, (laughs) cold whiteness. And to find out that there was a sizable black community there, I'm like, get out. I mean, for real. So tell me about Minneapolis. Well, it's so funny you say that because when I went off to college in Washington, D.C., and I would tell people that I was from Minneapolis, they'd say, there's black people there. Yo, I get it. Yeah, and then they'd say, oh, it's just Kirby Puckett, who was a famous baseball player, Minnesota Twins. It's so just, some people would say, oh, it's just you and Kirby, your family, Kirby Puckett and Prince. <laughs> okay. I mean, yes, I am a Prince fan, all you know, dire Prince fan, but there are more black people there. Um, but Minneapolis, I mean, 
it's an int- really interesting city. So, well, and you know, Twin Cities, so Minneapolis and St. Paul. I am a Minneapolis uh, girl. We I grew up in South Minneapolis. My um, my parents both uh, were born and raised in South Minneapolis as well. Um, it's a city that I think. You know, it's constantly applauded for, you know, the Twin Cities in general are constantly applauded for being some of the, like, one of the best, like, most livable places or communities. Um, and ju- only recently are, is everyone sort of starting to realize, oh, that's actually not true for Black and Brown people. Something that Black and Brown people have known for a long time, but I think what happened after the murder of George Floyd has really brought to light the... You know, stark disparities that have existed for a long time, but people uh, just didn't realize or recognize or want to realize or recognize. And so um, we are one of those states where, you know, on paper, healthiest, you know, know, we have the healthiest um, residents if you're white. We have one of the highest graduation, high school graduation rates if you're white. In fact, we have the lowest or one of the lowest if you are Black or Indigenous. Um, we have uh, one of the highest home ownership rates in the country if you're white. But uh, the, I mean, I think nationally, we, we rank at the bottom for Black home ownership um, out of all states in the, in the nation, or, or at the bottom for not the, the last. And so um, it's a community that is, you know, that has all of these really, I think, deeply rooted uh, uh, and entrenched, you know, issues, um, but also a vibrant and really diverse community of people who, you know, we are also a a city and state where, um, you know, we have Somali, a large Somali community, um, a large Hmong population, you know, immigrant communities who have, you know, could go many places, but chose to come to the state of Minnesota and to Minneapolis and St. Paul in search of uh, more opportunity and a better life. Um, because we are really, um, we have one of the like highest philanthropic giving rates in the in the nation, and there is there is money and there is community. You know, so there's a lot to hold there. I think with like these disparities I named um, and talked about, but also this like. Embrace, you know, embracing of um, such a diverse, you know, community of people. Hmm. What other cities would you say are similar to Minneapolis? Because, mm-hmm. like, when I think Philly, I think Philly is, has a lot in common with Cleveland mm-hmm. and a lot in common with Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Who does Minneapolis share commonalities with? That's a good question. I don't know. I think, you know, I've heard people say Minneapolis can be similar to a city like Seattle or if heard Portland, Oregon, but I don't know what that compare, you know, what they were comparing. Um, you know, I don't, yeah, it's hard for me to say. I don't, you know, I, I've, I've lived in, in Minneapolis and I've lived in Washington, DC. I know Minneapolis is nothing like Washington, DC for certain. Um, but, uh, I, I do, I don't know. It's hard for me to say what I could, you know, what city I would compare it to. Gotcha. 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 In terms of just being from Baltimore, now I have Baltimore <laughs> <Right>. brain. <laughs> in terms of just being from Minneapolis and going back there, mm-hmm. um, 
Was there a particular social challenge that you wanted to work on, which led you to go green light is it? Yeah. No, that's an interesting question. So not exactly. I've spent, I spent prior to green light, I'd spent um, all of my career for the most part working on education policy. Um, And, you know, I really saw education and ensuring that, uh, black and brown kids, kids from low-income families, um, kids with um, special education needs receive the best, you know, highest quality education. Um, and I really saw that as like the silver bullet and the thing that would sort of, if we could fix that, if we could get that piece right, we would be able to like tackle all the other things. Um, Public working in education policy is incredibly hard. Change is incredibly slow. And then also the role that I was in, um, we at, in the Obama administration, we were pushing forward, uh, you know, the president's agenda and the secretary of education's agenda for education, only for it to get totally undone. undone. And then when the Trump administration came in, and so I share that to say that. When I start, you know, started reading more and understanding more about green, the opportunity at Greenlight, I got really excited about the opportunity to potentially focus, you know, step away from policy, specific policy work, um, but also to potentially focus on um, all sorts of different areas of need, but also love that it was driven by my community. Those areas of focus that I would be working on would not necessarily be me saying, here's where we need to focus, here's what we need to do, here's the issue we should tackle, but that the community would say, here's where we should, you know, here's where the gaps are, here's what we need to do. And so um, it was just really exciting to make that pivot and sort of open up a door of opportunity across a lot of different areas of focus and not be exclusively focused on education. Personally, um, I have uh, three areas of nonprofits that is near and dear to my heart. Um, one is health and fitness. Um, the other is dealing with and supporting families of people who have substance abuse issues. It's not that I don't care about the individual who has the substance abuse issue. I just think we forget about the families because it's a family disease. Yep. And then it's not just education. It's little bitty people Mm -hmm. education, early childhood Mm -hmm. education. I read a book. I can't remember the woman's name, but the title of the book is Why Do All the Black Kids Sit Together in the Cafeteria? It was the first time somebody had ever explained the prison, the school to to prison prison pipeline pipeline. to me in a way that made sense. Mm -hmm. That broke my heart. Now I feel like we got to get all kids Mm -hmm. K through three Mm -hmm. together. Um, But here's my question to you. Aside from that soliloquy, (laughs) um, what are the needs that the people of Minneapolis have identified? Sure. So you can imagine the list is long, mm-hmm. um, but I can highlight a few that I've been focused on and thinking about a lot. Um, those include public safety. Um, public safety as in community violence or public safety in terms of fear of the police department? All of the above, frankly. Okay. Um, you know, there was, after the murder of George Floyd, a huge and continues somewhat to be a huge push for police reform um, and shifting the way policing is done in our cities. Um, uh, But also, I think, a focus on how are we coming together as community to be a part of um, ensuring that our communities are safe and what we want them to be. Um, So I think there's a lot that's wrapped up in that's a 
sort of big bucket wrapped up with a lot of, you know, areas of focus. Um, Health disparities, more specifically, uh, access to mental health for young people in particular, but also acknowledging that um, we have very few uh, caregivers that identify, you know, caregivers of color, um, you know, in, in general. Like, I'm trying to remember the, stati- the statistic, but it's pretty low, under 5% of uh, physicians um, identify, I believe, as people of color. Um, and, and, you know, finding culturally, you know, care you know, from, a, from a provider who looks like you um, is, is a challenge. Um, I would also say uh, maternal health is under, comes up a lot under the health disparities bucket, um, particularly as it relates to Black women um, and Black women and birthing people and Indigenous women and birthing people and the disparities that exist around um, around uh, maternal wellness, maternal health, and infant mortality as well. Um, uh, the state of Minnesota recently, I guess in the last less than a year ago, released a report, a maternal mortality review committee report that highlighted the disparities, particularly for Black and Indigenous uh, birthing people and women who um, are dying at higher rates or having more health complications than their white counterparts. Um, That's also, we see that nationally as well, but but there is a clear disparity in the Twin Cities. Um, So those are a few that, you know, have risen to the top and that I've been looking at for at, um, through my work at Greenlight Fund. But as you can imagine, the list is, is Were there long. any items on the list that surprised you? Hmm. No, I don't think so. I mean, you know, every, that the, like I said, that list included, uh, you know, everything from uh, access to food, um, employment opportunities, um, particularly in specific industries like the healthcare industry and the technology industry and finding opportunities for, um, for uh, black and brown people to enter those fields. Um, we looked, or I'm trying to think what else we've, we've talked about and, and looked at. Um, you know, education always kind of rises to you know is on the on the list. There are so many, um, I think, areas of fo- potential areas of focus. There we looked at um, the teaching workforce and the lack of diversity in it, like the lack of educators of color, both in Minneapolis and St. Paul public schools, and uh, finding ways to not only create a stronger pipeline, but also how do we, you know, one thing through those conversations that we really identified was like the need and the problem was the school culture, school cultures, you know, are just not uh, um, primed and ready for educators of color to feel like they can, you know, thrive and be, you know, who they are and really support students. And so they're leaving those positions at higher rates and therefore, um, you know, they're, there was a break in that pipeline. And so we have been thinking about what can we do to sort of help shift that piece of um, this you know, sort of diversity pipeline puzzle um, to figure out uh, if there are ways to really 
you know, intentionally work with the community partners who are doing this work in our city already to um, to ensure that we can have more educators of color uh, in in our classrooms that reflect, you know, the identities of the the growing uh, population of diverse students across Minneapolis and St. Paul. Wow. Yeah, education really is a big one, and it determines so many other things, or at least influences those things. Um, what are the projects that you've been able to bring to Minneapolis? Yeah, so the first um, project that we uh, brought to Minneapolis was announced about a year, a year ago, last April, um, and really I see as a direct response uh, to the murder of George Floyd and the um, uprisings that took place in our community um, directly after. Um, it's a program called Let Everyone Advance with Dignity. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a public health approach to community safety. Mm-hmm. And it's focused specifically on what's called the East Lake Street Corridor in Minneapolis, which is where many of uh, the businesses, uh, mostly a you know, huge percent of, what, of which were um, are, are owned by uh, uh, but uh, people of color were burned down um, in the sort of aftermath and uprisings. Um, and what we, you know, we started off having these conversations with community members, re- community residents, community leaders, talking about, you know, what they were feeling, thinking, and how they were, what they wanted to see for for the community, you know, as you know, as we were all sort of continuing to heal and process the trauma of what we witnessed three, almost three years ago. And um, actually three years ago this month. And uh, one of the things we heard was, well, we heard a couple of things. One, it was clear that community members wanted to be a part of the solution, whatever that solution was, they wanted to be active, play an active role in it. Um, We also heard a, a, a very strong desire to have an alternative to calling police for low-level offenses, um, particularly low-level offenses that are rooted in issues of substance abuse or being unhoused or mental health um, issues or all of the above, right? Um, and so we uh, really started looking for an opportunity, a program that was evidence-based that we could you know, bring in to our community, partner with uh, key with community members and residents, but also key um, uh, organizations and collaborators to uh, offer this you know, program. And so the lead, let everyone advance with dignity. The lead program uh, deploys case managers into the community, but these case managers are really intentionally building. Um, like intentional long-term relationships with clients. And again, the clients are like low-level offenders who, you know, you're, you know, a business owner will often see in front of their store sort of, you know, maybe making trouble for or causing a disturbance and deterring customers from coming in. And that business owner now has a place to call to say, hey, Johnny's here. Can, um, you know, I think whether, you know, maybe Johnny's already enrolled in the program, like, can Johnny's case manager come out and check on him today? How is that working? It's really, um, it's, it's interesting. Like, so now you have tweaked my, my, oh, yes. How is this working? (laughs) Because I'm just saying, you don't call the police. You call the office to say, Johnny is out here in front of my store. I don't get Johnny. Right. And it's so this, I mean, the beautiful thing about this program is that it is, it only works if 
the, you know, everyone is at the table. When I say everyone, that means um, the program manager, project manager who runs, who's running the program. It means the city, Minneapolis city attorney's office. It means the public defenders. It means Minneapolis police department, because we don't, you know, we are trying to keep people from cycling in and out of a system, mm-hmm. you know, criminal justice system, the law enforcement system. Um, it only works if the city council member is on board and the county commissioner and the metro transit captain. Where did you import this program from? LEAD started in Seattle um, in 2011 okay. and has grown across the country to many cities across the country. Um, we, you know, I, I mentioned the acronym LEAD um, stands for Let Everyone Advance with Dignity. And that name is a shift um, for it, the program started out as law, law enforcement law enforcement assisted diversion program. But after the murder of George Floyd, folks from across the country were saying, we need to, you know, recenter our people, recenter our community, decenter uh, law enforcement. And, um, and so they shifted the name. Um, and so Minneapolis was the first community to implement the program under uh, let everyone advance with dignity, which I think is really powerful given that we, you know, all that we've experienced in the community over the last few years. I must admit, I've always been cynical about the idea that we could decenter police. I'm like, it ain't happening. Um, and then in this part of the country, I know the law enforcement and uniform folks, they have the union of the guards. And so when you decided that you wanted to work on this lead program, how did you, because I, from what I understand with yeah. Greenlight, you choose from a variety of issues and then you whittle down. Mm-hmm. How did you know you were ready to take on this fight? So I wasn't sure. I, you know, I have this wonderful advisory council who I said, hey, should public safety be on the top of our list? It can get political. It can get challenging. Mm-hmm. All the things. And they said, looked at me and said, we need to keep this on the list and we need to be here. This is what we need. This is the work we need to be doing. I, I agree. I was secretly happy that they, that was the response and knew they had my back. Um, but I also knew it was going to be an uphill battle. Yeah. Bringing together so many entities many of whom don't have the same interests. The city attorney's office and the public offender defenders, you know, they have different interests, right? Um, you know, Minneapolis Police Department, who, you know, was experiencing and still is, you know, experiencing um, a lot of uh, officers leaving, um, <clears throat> leaving the department, leaving the police force. Also, you know, all the conversations around police reform and that culture shift, um, around policing, uh, were they going to be willing to come to this table? Um, we were also during, at that time faced with uh, a mayoral election and almost every seat on the city council, Minneapolis city council was up for re-election as well. And so, it, you know, I, all of these things were playing in the back of my mind, but I also knew without a doubt that my first, uh, you know, my first project, my first program at Greenlight, 100% needed to be um, a response in some shape or form to what had taken place in our community. Um, and 
I also knew and was deeply committed to finding whatever that was. I knew it needed to be um, something that brought all the, you know, a variety of diverse stakeholders together because in my experience, you know, with all the work I've done at the federal level, if we're not all, uh, if we're not compromising and bringing folks together who might have different views than us or different approaches, um, we're just, we're not going to get the work done. And so it was a push. It was a challenge. I just, there were nights, days where I was, you know, wasn't 100% certain we would get there, but, uh, I will never forget the first, um, like the the day that we announced, you know, the press release went out, Greenlight Fund, Twin Cities investing, you know, making, you know, in, with partners are investing 1.4 million in this new oper- new public safety initiative. Um, and we also, we held a, a meeting that um, was meant to sort of be the kickoff and start of this work. And the mayor of Minneapolis walked in and the police, Minneapolis police chief walked in, not their staff, you know, not, you know, but the the mayor himself and the police chief herself um, at the time, and uh, and the county commissioner for the area and the city council member for the area all sat down, you know, and many others sat down at the table and said, you know, let's do this together. And so, wow, uh, it, it was pretty powerful. You just listened to part one of our interview with Simone Hardiman Jones of the Greenlight Fund. We hope you'll check out part two. Thank you for listening to the Leadership Drives podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and subscribe, share with your family and friends, and be sure to tune in to the next episode of the Leadership Drives.